Okay, well, welcome everyone. We are joined today by Stephen Friedman, and I'm very excited to talk to you. So before we kind of get into the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about sure. the work that you do in supporting organizations and leaders? Uh, sure, absolutely. So first and foremost, um, I work as an adjunct professor at the Schulich School of Business, York University in Toronto for the past 23 years. And aside from, oh my God, you look so young, I'm sure you started when you were five <laughs> and all those wonderful things. Um, it's uh, It's been really quite an amazing ride over there. Um, and so in that part of my role, I teach in our undergraduate business program, as well as in three or four different graduate level programs. So including the MBA, which is wonderful, my mm -hmm. master's of management, master's of marketing, and the Masters of uh, Data Analytics, which is a, a, a or Business Analytics, which is a wonderful uh, and interesting group as well. And then, um, so I do that. I teach a lot of classes in those areas, um, and primarily mm. in you know they range from um, critical thinking skills and complexity science, behavioral economics, all the way to mm -hmm. um, human resource management, interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. But of course, my own interests go well beyond those things and deeper into all of them. I also work as an executive educator for 23 years, about the same amount mm -hmm. of time, at mm -hmm. the Schulich Executive Education Center. I used to do a lot of work uh, on my own as well, but mostly my executive work now uh, is under the head, under the banner of the school. It's just such an amazing place to work with so many wonderful people, mm -hmm. so much support and uh, access to really wonderful and amazing um, hungry to learn clients. And that's so right. um, that's, uh, that's amazing. I mostly work with senior managers at up and um, it's super, super fun. I leap out of bed every morning to go to work. So okay. I love it. I love when I, when I looked at your bio and saw all the different courses that you teach, I loved how much there's interconnectedness between them, you know, in interpersonal communication, organizational behavior, and all of these different pieces that you're covering. And I, and I love that they're all present and being taught in a, in a business school and MBA programs. Oh, me too. Really me cool. too. And of course, you know, I was just telling somebody else this today. It's like, you know, um, organizational behavior, like we have our own department. It's called organizational studies um, mm. at the school. And uh, it is not, you know, when people enter into a business school, they generally don't say, hooray, let's go study organizational studies. Um, they're usually into other things. But the fun stuff is that, you know, sort of after a bit of time, um, a great many of them gain a tremendous amount of interest in this mm -hmm. area. So that's yeah. exciting. No, that, that is exciting. We have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> so that's great. Yeah, so I know you worked with a lot of leaders and you have a lot of wonderful thoughts and experiences on, you know, leadership. So I would love to hear from you kind of what are some of the biggest challenges that you think leadership is experiencing today in our world? Well, there's a lot, um, um, none of which are insurmountable. So I think they're all things that anybody could learn how to do and manage through. I would say some of the biggest challenges are ones that are just exacerbated. In other words, they were things that were already ongoing and they've just gotten a little bit more significant. And I'd say, I'd say one of those is um, sort of not changing what you and I would call a mindset or a frame for how we look at business problems. Um, and so I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but I want to mainly talk about the people part, which is, um, you know, a few things. One is, you know, it's become more difficult to have conversations with people in workplaces. Mm. 
Mm. Uh, there's an expectation that everyone should agree with one another. Mm. And we sort of fall in love with this notion of agreement. And while we all talk about authenticity, et cetera, we have a very sort of limited understanding of what those things mean. Mm. And we tend to think about leadership practices as sort of what I call, you know, pillars or, mm. or best practices or, and I'm just not so sure those things exist because mm-hmm. I think people just sort of want, here's the five, the list of five things that you need to do and bang, you'll be a wonderful leader. And I just don't think those, uh, in fact, I know those things don't exist um, because it's more about the way we think as individuals. Mm. And this is the thing that um, our incredible not highway of knowledge has mm-hmm. uh, has sort of made more difficult is the thinking part, mm-hmm. as opposed I, to the I, knowing part. I love the part that you say about um there's this expectation that we have to agree with everything. And and I think that um, a discomfort or a pushing away of being in tension. And, you know, as I'm sure somebody who works in interpersonal communication, you, you understand that tension and conflict is an everyday and necessary part of interpersonal communication and, and you know, growing communication. So I'd love for you to touch on that a little bit more as to... Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, this is something I talk to my students about all the time. And um, and let me say a couple of things about that. I'm really glad that you brought, that you highlighted this. Um, when I teach my students, especially my grad students, about conflict management, which I do all the time. In fact, mm-hmm. I do, like in some classes, I do two weeks on this topic. Um, mm-hmm. I ask them to tell me what makes something a conflict. And we write them all down. Mm-hmm. And then once we get a list of about 20 things, we start going through it. And inevitably, we cross them all off the list because none of them work. Um, and um, this is part of the challenge is I think that we've misunderstood a great many things as conflict. So for example, the big ones are disagreement mm. or different values or different choices or different decisions. And of course, all we have to do is point out a number of more mundane examples, like, you know, you're this faith and I'm a different faith. Do we have a conflict? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. I prefer this cut of steak versus that cut of steak. Do we have a conflict? No. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is my, the way I think about this is my opinion on this, on the Barbie movie. And this is somebody else's opinion on the Barbie movie. Do we have a problem? No. Do we have a conflict? No. So once mm-hmm. we start making our way through it, we start to see conflict, hopefully my students do in a different way. And that way is um, the idea that, you know, conflict can exist and it be not a problem. Mm-hmm. Conflict doesn't have to be a problem. Um, so what makes conflict a problem is sort of what I call um, a lack of capacity for holding multiple ways of looking at something in your head mm. at the same time and seeing them as viable. Mm. So it's like, you know, it's perceived inconsistency. So, mm-hmm. you know, can my opinion live in the world at the same time as somebody else's that's different? A lot of times we sort of think no, but the truth is, Yeah. We do it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the kind of thing that brings about, you know, instead of, uh, you know, a battle back and forth, it could bring about things like, you know what? Hmm, your opinion is different than mine. Why don't you teach me about it? Mm-hmm. Tell me about where you got that from. What is your experience that led you to that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe I could take a turn and tell you about my experience. So it's sometimes I call with my students perceived incompatibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing about perceived incompatibility is that once you perceive that it's not incompatible, the bad smell goes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It becomes not a problem anymore. It's still conflict. Yeah. Not every conflict has to be a problem. Yeah. I think that's a great. We can repeat that again. Not every conflict has to be a problem. That's yeah. right. 
That's right. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, um, and sometimes we ask, I ask people, you know, I ask my students, you know, do you expect to go into the world of work or really anywhere mm-hmm. and have everybody think the same way that you do? And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, when you frame it that way, everybody sort of stops for a moment and says, well, I guess not. But look mm-hmm. at how upset we get when people don't see things. And, you know, quite frankly, and, I, and this, I'm no different. We all have this in us. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, we live in Canada and here in Canada, we all jump up and down about diversity. And so mm-hmm. the joke is we, we all jump up and down about diversity until we find it. <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden, it's you must agree with me. But that's mm-hmm. a big part of diversity, diversity of ideas, diversity of a ways of thinking and approaching problems is also a significant source of difference in mm-hmm. people. And, you know, embracing differences isn't just about, um, you know, some of the more um, uh, common areas that we think about. It also mm-hmm. includes areas that we don't always think about. And one of them is, you know, I ask this question all the time. Can you do you have room in you for a different way to look at this? Mm-hmm. You don't have to love it. You don't have to agree with it. Obviously, there's extremes. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not big on hate. You know, that's not a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And discriminatory practices and, you know, things that that, that really profoundly affect people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, within the realm of most of the things that most of us deal with in the real world, not arbitrary arguments on Facebook, uh, yeah. but in the real world, um, most of these things are surmountable. I can find, and it's not about finding a common ground. It's not about compromise, any of those things. It's just about making room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have a question that I want to tie that idea of making room into the organizational behavior and how an organization yeah. lives and breathes and structures itself. And I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on perhaps maybe what might be some stumbling blocks for people to create that room inside an organization that you've kind of seen and identified over your years? Well, um, I, that's a really great question. I would say um, <clears throat> looking at only one metric, mm. limited metrics of success would be one of the ways. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, the whole thing is if all you want to make is money, that's mm-hmm. all you'll get. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't get me wrong. I'm a capitalist. I like business. <laughs> I like to make money, mm-hmm. but that's not all that matters. It's mm-hmm. like in any human relate. You know, people have relationships with jobs and workplaces, just like we have relationships with people. So yep. you know, if um, you know, if all you want in your partner is someone who's rich, that's likely all you're going to get. Yeah. So yeah. if that's all you go after, you don't sit there and wonder, geez, why don't I have these other things? So yeah. I think that in organizations, one of the stumbling blocks is, and granted, by the way, there's many organizations that have transcended this stumbling block and do a wonderful job. Um, things like social enterprise, things mm-hmm. like, you know, and a lot of huge companies have mm-hmm. mandates that are well beyond just the bottom line financially. There's mm-hmm. also a social bottom line. There's an environmental bottom line. And I'm optimistic that we begin to see more and more organizations saying my metrics for success mm-hmm. are not just shareholder value. They mm-hmm. are stakeholder value. And stakeholders include mm-hmm. a broad range of people. So I would say that's one of the big stumbling blocks is sort of individuals stepping back and saying, <clears throat> you know, I have to make this also, in addition to profitable, mm-hmm. successful financially, I also have to, I don't know, make this place that really smart, great people want to go to work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because, yeah. You know, I tell my students all the time, you can have the best uh, product in the world. You can be the smartest person in the world. You can have 800 letters beside your name. 
but if people don't want to hang out with you, it doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing I think about from what you're saying is, you know, I always say, you know, systems are made by people, right? So even though one might be in a leadership role and has more power to alter those systems faster, ultimately everybody within that system has to look at what metric are they working in within because that's where some of those team conflicts start to generate themselves as well is from when we aren't working within the same metric you know i as the manager might be thinking one thing and then you as the one that's executing the work might be thinking something else and so we're not even starting from the same place which so i i do like that that you bring that up because i think that's important yeah, absolutely. And and part of that systems approach is also recognizing that, listen, I, I get that there, and I know that there are power structures in organizations, and I know that people in senior positions will often have more sort of what we, you and I would call legitimate power. I'm the boss, and therefore, I have the ability to hire and fire and make decisions, all those things. But one of the most important things for people in organizations is to recognize is that there are other sources of power. Now, if we can sit there and say, well, it's not as big as the boss's power. And I say, sometimes you're right. It's not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, inherent in, I always tell my students that's inherent in the word sometimes mm-hmm. is also the other sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we know from the science that in many cases, things like what we might call personal power, relationship power, or um, or the power of expertise, uh, those kinds of things, can actually, you know, wield a bigger stick than mm-hmm. can being the boss. Mm-hmm. So it becomes about, you know, for any employee who isn't in a formal position of power, it's about asking yourself, where can I influence the system? Yeah. And, you know, when I look at it and I say, well, I can't flu- influence it all, so forget it. Yeah. I mean, that's giving up. And And by the way, the boss who we think has power doesn't have absolute power either. Yeah. It's easy yeah. to look at the boss and say, well, they can do whatever they want. No, they can't. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I think that's such an important point in that question. Where can I influence and how can I influence the system? Um, how can I t- where can I touch it, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to where can't I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go back to that part about liking the people that you work with. <laughs> because one of my, a lot of my work is around how we relate. And to me, that is a nutshell what emotional literacy is you know people talk about emotional literacy emotional intelligence as knowing mm-hmm. your emotions and knowing you know having empathy which are parts of it but in in yep. the bottom line is that it's really about how we relate how we relate to others ourselves our work you know the systems all of that so i want to kind of take your input and your thoughts on this idea of like how we relate and the importance of that within an organizational behavior or the culture of an, a company or organization? It's such a great question. And I think, as you know, I just wrote something about this in the conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago, the conversation Canada worth checking out and reading. Um, sorry for the plug. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, you know what, it's about um, uh, making a choice of your intention, mm. I think. Mm. So it's like, if you're going to work saying, I want to be like sort of love everybody and think everybody, I want to be their best friend forever. And they have to be the person that I would spend the rest of my life with or whatever, then you're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that emotional literacy is recognizing that, you know what, uh, or that, that, that uh, relationship, emotional literacy, this kind of stuff that I know you're very interested in mm-hmm. um, has a lot to do with sort of your expectations and your intentions. Um, You know, if you're going to go to work and say everyone is going to be the same as me, I'm going to like them all the time and everything's going to be fabulous. 
I can promise you, you're not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. you know? um, but ultimately, I think that we have to assume the best of other people and make your adjustments based on that. Like I really still, even after doing this work for 25 years, I don't think anybody goes to work rubbing their hands together saying, how can I screw everything over? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I know we sometimes believe that somebody else is doing that because <laughs> we love simple explanations. You know, someone does something bad. We're like, they have it against me. It's all part of an evil plot to take over the world and, you know, turn all the animals into robots or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but, but people of course, aren't that smart and we can't do that. That's why I'm not a big conspiracy guy. It's just like, just, you know, we can't even keep a secret at home. Uh, I don't think we're keeping secrets, you know, about aliens for 40 years. Um, but, but you know what, though, um, if once we make the choice that says, hey, you know what, people's lives are complicated and there's things I don't know about people and I'm going to make the best of all possible assumptions. Now I'm in a position to be able to do something about it. Mm -hmm. But if we're going in saying, you know, um, this person, um, you know, um, uh, I, I, I don't like them because of these reasons and they should be a different kind of person. Mm -hmm. There's no way forward with that because you 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 can't do that. Like mm -hmm. the, you can't reach into somebody's head. I always say and start tinkering around and change it. But mm -hmm. you can change your behavior, and that doesn't mean that you have to put up with everything. Yeah, you know, if somebody's treating you poorly and bullying, these things are horrible things. And they happen in organizations. Yeah. And so you work on being able to do something about it, or you vote with your feet and you go and do something else. Yeah. Or you, or you, you know, take the law into your hands. Like all those things are doable. Are they perfect? No, but they're a heck of a lot better than sort of sitting there wishing someone was different. Yeah, yeah. And I think that ties into that piece around conflict, um, not always needing to be a problem. And the idea of, you know, you can work with somebody that you like and be in conflict with them. You can also work with somebody that you don't like and be in conflict with them. They don't necessarily mean one and the same, right? It doesn't mean I'm because right. you're in conflict with someone that you like them or don't like them, right? Right. Well, you know what? I, I would even go one step further and say, they're probably, we say, I don't like that person. Well, it's like, I just, I love this metaphor. It's like, if I go to a restaurant, and somebody tells me they have a really great burger. So I'm going to go to the restaurant. I order this wonderful burger and it's fabulous. But I try the fries. And I listen, I'm somebody who's like, you know, when I order fries, they got to be amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going there unless they're fabulous. I'll waste it on something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I go there, I eat the burger. It's amazing. The fries, yeah, they're not so mm -hmm. fabulous. They're clearly frozen. I'm not tossing away the whole restaurant. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say the restaurant is, I don't like the restaurant. It's terrible. I'm never going there again. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I'm wise and I don't want to miss out on the wonderful burger, I'm going to say, you know, next time I'll get a different side dish. How mm -hmm. about a salad? You know, how about soup? How about just have the burger? You know, yeah. um, how about better yet? How about two burgers? You yeah. know, the fries are just starch. Anyhow, they're just carbs. Just have another bun. It's fine. Um, right. <laughs> Yeah. So when I look at people the same way, and that's, I think, a big part of this emotional literacy is like saying, you know what, there's something you like about that person. Find it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's not that dissimilar from, you know, I hate to say it, family. Yeah. No, 100%. We, yeah. we, we do it all the time. People have siblings. And I, when I ask people this question, I say, you've got siblings or cousins or in-laws, and you ask yourself, if they weren't related to you, would you would they be your friend? And yeah. most of them say no. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yet you still have the relationship. Yes, yes. Same yeah. thing. Yeah, no, exactly. And one of the things I often say when in my emotional literacy work is, you know, focus on the behavior, not the person. 
right? And and that's kind of what it makes me think of is like, where can we create yep. change and transformation in how we're relating to the behaviors of each other um, rather than getting stuck on you're this way and I'm that way. And then we have this conflict that we can't move out of. And I think that if we take that to a bigger picture and we zoom out a bit and look at organizations, they often get stuck in kind of this, the same identities rather than looking at behaviors, you know? And so how can we change those behaviors and not the identities of the people or, you know, the, the organization itself, it, it transforms through behavior, right? So any change absolutely ultimately want, it's going to happen through behavioral change. That's where change begins. Absolutely. Right? You know what? I, I, this is why I knew we would have such a wonderful talk is because behavior rules. Like but people are so obsessed with this type though, type yeah. of person we want to give the Myers-Briggs yeah. or this test and the, that they're this kind of person. They're toxic. Yeah. They're difficult. They're this. I don't know about you, but I think I can be really nice and I can also be a jerk, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, like, like I think everybody, I could be smart yeah. and I could be really stupid. Um, sure. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a dynamic person, like, like the vast majority of everyone. I meet thousands of people like you do. And most people are capable of a whole host of behaviors. So, yeah. you know, if we, if we look at ourselves and say, I'm capable of good things and bad things, then clearly other people are too, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's part of it is, is appreciating that and from an organizational perspective, we just want to find this quick route to understanding somebody, but it's really about the behavior, you know? Yeah. And one of the things in, in conflict management theory, like some of the oldest ideas of conflict management theory are like moving from a task or process conflict, which is what you and I would call behavior, mm -hmm. to a relationship conflict, that's where it goes awry. That's where it turns bad. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's like, hey, you know, it starts as a task conflict. I don't think we should do it this way. I think this is the best way to solve this business problem. Oh, you know, I, I don't agree. Well, you always want to control the conversation. Mm -hmm. Bing, there it is. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like mm -hmm. often so so many times in organizations it becomes this interpersonal kind of and in relationships too. You mm -hmm. never, you always. As soon as mm -hmm. you get to you never, you always, it's there's no there's no moving forward from that, right? Because mm -hmm. to your point, we've yeah. we've made we've made we've made the behavior endemic to the person. And I don't think yeah. that's the case. And that's when you start people you start hearing people go home and say, Oh, this person at work or this, you know, is such a toxic person or such a this or that. Oh. And then you yeah. kind of get caught up in that and, and it really demoralizes you as somebody to want to keep working there. So it ends up being this vicious yeah. cycle. So and, I, and it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like you, if as soon as you decide that someone is toxic, you know, you know, the way this goes, you see yeah. it everywhere. It's like, you know, yeah. if I'm thinking of buying a Hyundai and I'm like, geez, I really like that Hyundai. Um, then I go look at it in the store and then I head out on the road in my Honda. All of a sudden, I'm looking around. I'm like, "Holy crap! Everyone drives a Hyundai." You yeah. Know? Of course, the number hasn't changed. Yeah. It's the same as before. But you know, once we have an expectation of what we're going to find, our eyes open up, and yeah. the human the human condition is to want to confirm the things that you think already, and yeah. that's like a confirmation bias. We start finding it everywhere, right? And that's what yeah. happens. And we start to view, and then we call it evidence. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for a really long time, but I want to just wrap it up soon with the last question of what would be one thing you would say to somebody in a leadership role that, you know, if they're struggling with having a, a or building or supporting a team that gets along and works through issues and problems and doesn't mean that they're conflict free, but is able to kind of work through them in, in a way that is respectful and equitable and without causing harm to anybody, what would be one thing that you would kind of say is really important to keep oh. in mind? 
I know there's more than one thing, but (laughs) such a great question. And I would say there is one thing. Notice stuff. Mm. Notice stuff. You know, sometimes I had a colleague who used to call it catch people doing something good. Mm. So it's like we do a lot of catching people doing something bad. It's mm. like we just don't notice anything and then there's a problem and then we got to have a big meeting and blah, blah, blah. But if you've got a team who's working through problems, once they work through one, stop the meeting for a second and say, hey, mm. Stephen, that's pretty cool that you did that. You know, mm. I noticed. And by the way, I, you don't even have to compliment them. You can just say, by the way, I can imagine that thing was really tough for you guys to get through. Mm. And I noticed that you, that even though it was tough, you did it. And I got to mm-hmm. say- that's that's some that's some awesome stuff. Mm, I love so that. Open your eyes and see those things. And so, like, listen for me, it's been very easy. I'm an effusive person, and I'm sort of philosophically believe whatever you notice something good, which you got to be looking for it. But whenever mm. you notice something good, you got to go and call it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much talk today about the opposite. When someone does something yeah. wrong, call it out. Yeah. Perhaps. But I'm much more interested in when somebody says something good, let's go over and say, I notice you and I see you and I know that it's hard for you. And I know that you that you're that this is something you have to even if it's bad, you can still do. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it goes back to that self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Which one are you trying to build? (laughs) Yeah. So no, that's that's a really great point for everyone to consider. Well, I really want to thank you for your time and on your insights. I think there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I'm curious how people can engage with more of your thoughts and your work. So if you want to just, you know. Yeah, well, I'm, I um, uh, best place to learn more about me is on my LinkedIn page, on my LinkedIn profile. Um, my name, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and then F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, Stephen Friedman. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can, you know, just search Stephen with a P-H, Schulich School of Business. You'll find me uh, on LinkedIn. And I also do a lot of writing um, in, I have a Medium uh, blog that I write, and I write regularly in that. Um, I know lots of other people do too. It's a really fun place to engage. Um, But LinkedIn is probably the best. I I include my Medium blog on my LinkedIn page as well. But reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm open to all sorts of stuff, connections and discussions. And and not only do I like to write and, and give people knowledge and information and stuff to learn, but I also am a lifelong learner myself. So I like to learn mm-hmm. from other people. I like to learn, as I have been from you in our few talks together, about emotional literacy, a very different way to think about it. And I think a really palatable way, a really easy way for people to wrap their heads around it, by the way, including myself, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I put myself in all the categories always, and that's a big part of sort of how I operate. So I would really mm-hmm. love for people to engage with me, have some thoughts, teach me something, um, you know, ask me something across the whole range. That's amazing. Thank you so much. And all that links as well will be shared. Um, Yeah. So thank you so much for joining today and having this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you.